The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in that chapter, a portion of which we read at the beginning in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, reading especially verses 4, 5, and 6. Verses 4, 5, and 6 in the 11th chapter of the book of Numbers. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusty. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Now some may well wonder after I read three verses like that as to what that has got to do with modern men and with this modern world in which we find ourselves this evening. I propose to deal with that question and to answer it because I want to try to show you that those three verses that I've just read to you more clearly than anything else that I know of at the present moment deal with the world situation as it is at this very hour, and not only the world situation, but the whole case and condition of men at this very moment. I am claiming, in other words, for this book which we call the Bible, that it is the most up-to-date book in the world, that there is nothing which is so contemporary, and that there is nothing which gives us such an insight into all our problems and difficulties. There is nothing which helps us to get out of them in any way comparable to this book. Now, what do I mean by all this? Well, I am referring, of course, to the facts of the present situation as they are being placed before us with a monotonous regularity in the daily newspapers. This is the time of the year when conferences are held. At this time of the year, the school teachers, the school masters, people who are concerned about social and moral problems, they generally have their annual conferences, and they've been having them this year as usual. And uh, their reports have been most uh, illuminating. Because we find that they all virtually and rarely are saying exactly the same thing. They all realize that in addition to the international situation, we are confronted by a very serious, a very grave moral problem in this country itself. Indeed, they seem to be coming more and more to see clearly that most of our problems, industrial problems, the problem of work, the problem of production, all these problems ultimately stem back to this common origin, which is 
the moral rot that has set in. And this is something which is showing itself in quite a variety of different ways. They've been discussing again the problem of the children of today and the difficulty of controlling them. The lawlessness that is rampant. The so-called problem of the adolescence. These youths and maidens who seem to recognize no rules and regulations whatsoever and who just, uh, for instance, uh, walk up to a bus and uh, just strike a knife into the tires for no reason whatsoever. This destructive impulse that is manifesting itself and causing uh, such acute concern uh, to the authorities. And then, of course, the perennial problem today of marriage and the breakdown in the marriage relationship and in home life and in the family life and in all these things. Now, I say that once more, all this has come out. It's there before us. You've been reading the details probably statements made by uh, headmasters of schools who are in a position to know as to the prevalence of smoking amongst the boys under 13 and between 13 and 15 and so on, the number who drink at that age and all the liberty in matters of sex at that age. Well, it's all been put before us. There they are. They have produced statistics. And they are extremely concerned about the whole situation. And because of that, they are, of course, making their suggestions as usual. They all seem to be agreed that so far there is no solution. So they're all in various ways and forms suggesting the setting up of commissions, commissions of inquiry. Let me just give you one exact quotation. A statement was made by a leading mental health specialist. And he urged that we should set up a national center for advanced studies of marriage problems and how to solve them. He then went on and said this. this is actually the, these are actually the words he used. He said, these problems should be tackled as if it were cancer or polio we were having to treat. Now you see his suggestion. He says, here is this great moral problem. And he was urging that at last it is surely time, and everybody should agree that it's time, that we should uh, develop a kind of research unit. Now he says, we are doing this with regard to cancer and poliomyelitis. There is great organized research, and men are being paid uh, to do that. This great problem of cancers being tackled along many lines. They're doing it on animals, experimenting. They're doing it with x-ray and with treatment. Now he said this is excellent. Now what we want is a similar research center with regard to these great moral problems and in particular he was referring to the whole problem of marriage. Now there you see is the confession of the bankruptcy of all this. But that is what they're saying. Now, these are able men. These are learned men in professions. These are men who are taking the position very seriously and are indeed genuinely and gravely concerned. But that is what they tell us. They give us the facts and the statistics and the best that they can produce as a solution is 
investigation, research work, a commission of inquiry. Well, now, what are we to say to all this? Well, I want to make just two comments in passing this evening. Here's the first. And I say this with the greatest possible respect. All that has already proved to be completely hopeless and useless. Man has never been so busy in doing that kind of thing as he has been during the past hundred years. Think of the commissions that have been set up. Think of all the new social arrangements that have been introduced, all the things designed for the amelioration of conditions. It's been tried and been tried with a great thoroughness. Never have we been so organized in that respect as we are now. And yet the problem seems to be going from bad to worse. I'm constantly repeating these things and I'll go on repeating them until people believe them. Never have we been so well educated in this country. Never have we had so many social institutions. Just make a list of them. And it, it's quite astonishing. Notice how every year there is something new being done. In order to train people and to guide them and to teach them and somehow or another to solve this great moral problem. And yet, you see, we are still proposing the same thing. Another commission. Another attempt at investigation, a new research project, and on and on it goes. But after all, my important remark is the second one, which is this. That all this is totally and completely unnecessary. Here is this great authority who proposes, you see, to set up a national center for advanced studies into this social problem. I say before they've set it up, it's unnecessary. It isn't needed. Why? Well, because we've already got the complete answer to the whole situation. And it is the answer that is to be found in this book. There is no need to set up a national center for investigation. There is a perfect diagnosis here in the Bible. Accurate, detailed, and comprehensive. Not only that, the treatment is already available. Now, this is, of course, the supreme tragedy in the world this evening. That men like this of learning and of understanding, uh, genuinely concerned about the problem, say, ah, we must set up a new center. We, we, we really must tackle this. Now we must organize teams, as we do with cancer and polio. We really must do this in a scientific manner. And then we may arrive at the cause and may find the cure. And the whole time, here is the answer in the Bible. Why don't they accept this? Why don't they believe this? Well, the answer that they give, of course, is that this cannot possibly be the answer because it's so old. They say that old book of yours, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, are at the very least some 1,600 years old. The canon of the Old Testament was formed and completed before the birth of Christ. The canon of the New Testament was settled and delimited soon afterwards, a few hundred years afterwards, 
Uh, here you are, you are asking us to come back to a book that men have been reading and considering uh, for at least 1,600 years. And they say the thing is patently monstrous and quite impossible. How can all that deal with the problems of the 20th century? My dear sir, they say, when are you going to come up to date? When are you going to realize that we are living in a world that's so different from that ancient world? Now that's the argument, as you know. And there, of course, is the essential fallacy, the central trouble with the modern outlook and the modern men. For the Bible, you see, even answers that when it puts it like this. It says that all men's troubles are due to sin. That all men's troubles are due to his wrong relationship to God. And it goes further. It says that that has always been true of men since that point at the beginning when men sinned against God and fell. Now the Bible's claim is that from that moment man has really been in the same position and in the same condition. In other words, the Bible says, of course, there are developments as life has gone on. You see that very development even in the Bible itself. Yes, but says the Bible, all these developments don't touch the radical and the fundamental problem. The developments have been simply on the surface. There have been no developments in the spirit of men. There have been no developments in what is true of men fundamentally. The developments have only been in clothing and things like that. Sometimes people dressed like savages. They don't dress like that now. But, you see, it's only the clothing that has changed the man is exactly as he was before. Oh, but says someone, what about the aeroplane? And what about the jet uh, plane and so on? Uh, surely there's a difference between that and men walking. Well, uh, may I quote what I once said in this connection? Of course, I'm well aware of these great advances in locomotion and in a thousand and one other respects, science has produced some astounding results and, well, let's thank God for them, although I'm doubtful of that at times, but let's thank God for the advances in the main and in general. But let me ask you the serious and the important question. What has all that sort of thing got to do with men? You see, it's in spite of the jet plane and in spite of the atomic power that we've still got the problem of juvenile delinquency and all these other things that the uh, statisticians have been putting before us these last few weeks. On the one hand, there is this phenomenal advance in scientific knowledge, but these old problems, they're still there. And of course, they've always been there. They're in the Bible. Oh, let me put it like this, therefore, as I say, I once put it before. Man certainly travels at a much faster rate today than he did 2,000 years ago. But the interesting thing is this, is the object of his journey. The modern man tears along, if you like, at 700 miles an hour in a jet plane, Men 2,000 years ago used to walk. Yes, but the vital question is, what are they going to do? Why are they traveling at all? And the answer is they're traveling for exactly the same reasons. To make love, or to make war, or to do business. Same thing. 
No difference whatsoever. The only difference is in the rate at which they do it. We do things in a hurry, you know. They did it leisurely then, but the things we are doing are exactly the same. Man has always eaten and taken drink. Man has always fallen in love and wants to get married. Man brings up a family. Still the same, you see. What's the atomic bomb and the jet plane got to do with this? These problems, says the Bible, are fundamental. These never change. They're always with us. And all the changes that people talk about so much and all about the 20th century is a complete irrelevance. The fact that we've got all these scientific advances and developments doesn't mean, you know, that stealing is no longer stealing or that adultery is no longer adultery or that any one of these things has become something different. Very well then, that is, I say, the great fundamental case of the Bible. There is no need, I say, for these new investigations. The trouble has already been diagnosed, it's been analyzed, it's been exposed, it's set out before us. Here it is, and there's only one solution. Now I want to stress this point, that it is the failure to realize this that is not only the tragedy of the present hour, it indeed accounts for most of our modern problems. It's because the world will not realize that the Bible tells us the truth about ourselves that we've got our urgent problems this evening. What do I mean? I mean this. That so many of our major problems today are due to the fact that because we have rejected the biblical view of man in sin, and sin as the explanation of man as he is, and have adopted certain other theories, that we've got our problems. What are they? Well, here I say is the trouble. It is because men no longer believe that man is radically sinful and rotten and vile, that the heart of men is desperately wicked and deceitful. It's because they don't believe that, that they don't believe in discipline. And it's because they don't believe in that, they also don't believe in punishment any longer. And it is because of this view, I say, that so many of our problems are confronting us at this present time. You see, the modern view is this. Oh, they say that biblical view of sin, it's insulting to man. That's not true. Man is not a miserable sinner. Not, man is not a vile creature. Man's a very noble character. They say man's essentially good. And if you're only kind and nice to him, you'll respond to the treatment. And if you'll only persuade him and plead with him, he'll, he's certain to follow you. No, no, they say let's get rid of this biblical notion of sin. That's out of date. Man is essentially good. Every child that's born is a Peter Pan. Nothing but uh, beauty and goodness. And Oh, if only we drew out the good that's in men instead of denouncing him and talking about sin, the world, they say, would be a much better place. So you abolish discipline in the schools. You don't cane people any longer. And you abolish punishment to criminals. Though a criminal may enter into the house of a poor, defenseless widow and beat her in order to rob her. Oh, he, he mustn't be beaten. 
No, no, there must be no punishment. Punishment is quite wrong. Punishment's based on that biblical view of sin and the wrath of God. No, no, we say we don't believe in that. We're emancipated out of all that. We believe that if you're only kind to people and if you only shower your love upon them, oh, they'll become marvelous saints and they'll give a wonderful response. No, that's been the controlling theory for nearly a hundred years. This was thrown overboard and was replaced by that. And as I say, we are reaping some of the major consequences of that today. I've already mentioned it, the problem of children. The lawlessness amongst children. The problem in the schools. This problem of behavior. The problem in the prisons. Yes, and you see, it's even appeared on the international scale and on the international sphere. Wasn't this really what was at the back of the attempt to appease a man like Hitler? Wasn't it that belief that if you only met him, he sits one side of the table, you sit the other, and talk reasonably to him? He's bound to respond. Now that was the attitude. There were many who advocated that in the church and outside the church. Statesmen believed it. They believed, you see, that if only you indulge in a sweet reasonableness, that everybody's bound to respond. They don't believe in the radical evil that is in men. And therefore all problems can be... And of course it's being advocated at the present time. Sweet reasonableness and kindness. And no talk about this evil in the human heart and the need of regeneration and a complete change and the need of the coming of the Son of God from heaven to earth and his death upon a cross on Calvary. No, no. Education can do it. Meeting together can do it. But the question is, are they doing it? My dear friends, I'm regarded as a man who's not interested in the present modern situation because I don't come into this pulpit every night and talk about the atomic bomb or about Jordan or about Egypt or something like that. The fact of the matter is I'm the only man in a sense who is dealing with these problems. There is only one thing that can deal with the situation. It's this. Everything else has been tried, is being tried. It leads to nothing and it never will. Why? Well, because its whole basis is wrong. It doesn't know man. And the first thing we have to realize is to realize the need of men, the condition of men. There is no hope until we realize the seriousness of the problem, the fundamental character of the problem, the depth of the problem, that man, I say, is as he is pictured here in the scriptures, and that he is so bad that he can never cure himself, it takes the coming of the Son of God from heaven to earth and to the cross and to hell in order to deliver him. That's the situation. Very well, it's because all that is outlined in these three verses that I'm calling your attention to them. Now that's been a long apologia, hasn't it? And a long introduction. Yes, but it was necessary, you see. Because if I'd just gone straight to my exposition, certain people would have gone out saying, well, of course, that's all right. That's all right for the individual. But, of course, he's not interested in the social problems. Never talks about them. 
Never hear him arguing politics in the pulpit. He's not interested. I want to show you that I'm so tremendously interested that I'm desperate about it and that's why I'm advocating the only solution. It's all here, I say. And what we are told is, of course, that men's troubles are entirely and always due to this one thing, and that is sin in the human heart. And here we see it. You see, here are the children of Israel uh, traveling up from the bondage and the captivity of Egypt into the land, the promised land of Canaan. And here they are, quite suddenly and without any reason for it, we are told that the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting, which is, can also be translated like this, suddenly had a strong craving. And the children of Israel also wept and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? And so on. Now, here I'm asking you to consider these three verses with me. Because I want to try to show you that they give us such a perfect analysis and a description of man's condition in sin. The world is as it is, I say, because of what sin has done to men. What has sin done to men? Well, sin has done to men what is described in these three verses. I only have time to deal with the first aspect of this subject this evening. God knows I'll, if God is willing, we'll come back to it on some future occasion. We'll come back to it a week tonight and perhaps for two or three subsequent Sunday evenings. But now here's the first thing. Sin, we are told here, has made men a victim of lust and of craving. The mixed multitude had a strong craving, fell a lusty. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Oh, what a perfect description of the modern men. What a perfect description of the modern world. What's the matter with men? What's the matter with the world? Why are the great men troubled and anxious and proposing to set up new centers of research? What's the cause of all the problem? Lust. Craving. Man is a creature of lust and passion and craving. What does this mean? Well, let me analyze it for you briefly. Let me put it in another form. The first thing I find here is this. That sin is something within us. Sin which causes all our troubles and problems is a principle within us. It's something in the very warp and woof of our very nature. Now, I find that in this way. Did you notice that these people fell a-lusting without any provocation whatsoever? They'd been brought out of the bondage of Egypt. 
They'd been taken across the Red Sea, and here they are on the way to the promised land, and absolutely suddenly, without any provocation at all and no reason whatsoever, they'd begin to lust. What made them do it? I say it's this principle that is within. Something that is in our very nature and in the vitals of our being. Now, this is the most important thing of all to grasp. Man is a creature as the result of the fall that has this evil, wrong, foul principle within him. I have a supreme authority for saying this. The Son of God himself. You'll find it stated in the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew and the 7th chapter of Mark. It is not that which entereth into the mouth that defileth the man, says our blessed Lord and Savior. It's that which comes out. It is out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, lasciviousness, all the things that have recently been appearing in the press. Our Lord gave the list, the catalog, long before these people ever came into the world. Out of the heart, from the center of a man's being. That is where all these things originate. But you see, the teaching is not confined to our Lord. You get it in these epistles. Let me read you how James puts exactly the same teaching, the same principle. He puts it in this way. Listen to him. Here's an analysis of modern men. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There it is. That's the history of the whole thing. And then you remember the way in which the Apostle Paul puts it? It's all there in that great seventh chapter of his epistle to the Romans. What's the matter with me, he asks, and he answers his own question. I find a law within my members. Why can't I do what I want to do? Why am I always doing the thing that I know to be wrong? What is it? I delight in the law of God after the inward, but I find another law in my members. That's it. It's a principle within. And he goes further and he says, I have come to this conclusion that in me, that is to say, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Was he worse than anybody else? Of course he wasn't. He was the same as everybody else. And that is the simple truth about every one of us. There is within us a principle of evil. There is in us that which is rotten, that which is vile. These people fell a-lusting. Why? Well, because there was lust within them. In other words, the, the principle that I'm establishing, you see, is this. That sin is something that is in us, even apart from temptation. You needn't wait to be tempted in order to sin. And it's a very great fallacy to think that men only sin because of their temptations. Of course, 
That is of the very essence of the modern outlook. That's why they fondly believe, you see, that if you just give us all new houses and if you indulge in certain social improvements that nobody will ever sin again. They really do believe that. They've believed that for a hundred years. They say, keep temptation away from people and they'll no longer sin. What you call sin, of course, is just a response to an environment. Make the environment perfect and the man will be all right. But you see, that's a contradiction of this principle which tells us that sin is in our nature as a principle. And haven't we all proved it? Haven't you often found this the first thing you, when you wake up in the morning? You've been soundly asleep, you wake up, and before you've done anything or anybody's done anything to you, an evil thought comes. Where did it come from? You hadn't read a book? You hadn't seen one of these vile advertisements that's on the hoardings. You were in your bed with the blinds drawn. Nobody said a word to you. Nobody made any suggestion or insinuation to you. And yet there you were alone. And suddenly, this vile, evil thing came. Where did it come from? Sin is a principle in the heart. And if you'll read the biographies and the confessions of men who because of this terrible problem and fight and battle once believed that if only they could get out of the world and live in a cell that all would be well and they'd never have evil thoughts again, you read what they tell you and they'll tell you that they have as many evil thoughts in the cell as they had in the world. It's a principle within and it operates, I say, in spite of, apart from temptation, and is not merely the response to temptation. Of course, it does respond to temptation. Temptation may draw it out still more, but if there were no temptation, if a man were segregated and isolated, and in a kind of perpetual glasshouse, he'd have an awful struggle with sin and evil. Why? Well, it's in his heart. It is out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murders, etc., these people fell a-lusting. Why? Well, because it was in them. Oh, yes, but I want to go on to my second point, which is this. According to this teaching, sin is not only a principle within, it is a principle that grips us. It is a principle that controls us. It is a principle that masters us and makes slaves of us. Now this is tremendously important. The whole modern fallacy appears at this point. The moderns have said that what we call sin is merely something negative. They say what you call sin is just a negative failure to do good. What you call sin is just the absence of certain qualities. You mustn't say that anybody is bad. What you really mean is that he's not good. You mustn't say that that child is a bad... No, no, it's just not a good child. And so with mankind in general, a mere negative condition, not positive evil. And they say, therefore, you mustn't be so harsh, you mustn't be so denunciatory, and you must just praise people and draw the best that's out of them. Draw it out of them, that's the great phrase. And you see why I'm opposing it is this. What do you draw out? You draw out evil, you draw out lust and passion, and we are seeing it manifested in the life of men today. No, no, sin is not merely a negative phase. Sin is a terrible power. It's an awful tyranny. 
Uh, had you realized how powerful it is? Well, let me remind you of its power. This is the power of sin in every one of us. It is something that suddenly grips us without any volition on our part at any moment, quite suddenly and unexpectedly. I don't stay with that. I've already mentioned it rarely in my previous point, but I've got to put it in here again because it shows the power of the thing. Look at these people traveling along from Egypt to Canaan, going to the promise. Suddenly they begin to lust. Why? Well, they've been taken hold of by this power that is within them. That's the measure of its power. But come, let me put it like this. Sin is as powerful as this. It's much more powerful than our reason. It's much more powerful than all our knowledge and all the teaching that we have ever received. Isn't this true? Isn't it the simple fact to say that men of great learning, great knowledge, great understanding fall to sin like everybody else? Men who've even been moral teachers have been moral failures. Men with great understanding and knowledge, men who are famous for their reason and for their balance, have been helpless dipsomaniacs, have been helpless sex maniacs. Now, this isn't imagination. I'm just giving you history. There have been men, there have been great statesmen even in this present century. Famous for their balance, for their wisdom, for their logic and their reason. None of your rabble-rousers, none of your demagogues, not the sort of men who plays superficially on people's feelings, a great mind, great statesman. Yes, and such men have been helpless victims, I say, of drink and of other forms of lust and of craving, and of desire. A man can be profoundly concerned about the, inter, about the sanctity of international contracts and yet fail to honor his own marriage contract. It isn't that the men lack reason. No, no, it's that this other thing is more powerful than his reason. Let Paul say it once again for us. I delight in the law of God after the inward men. To will is present with me. I want to do it. I recognize it. I see that that's right. But I can't do it. Why, this other thing is stronger. The law in my members dragging me down. Oh, wretched men that I am. Yes, but it's not only more powerful than reason and knowledge. It is also more powerful than a man's will. Some men have got very powerful wills. They can impose their wills on others. And if they're determined to have a thing, they have it. And everybody has to give in strong will. Yes, but look at that man with his powerful will. An absolute victim to sin in some shape or form. It's stronger than the will. The strongest will to will is present with me. But how to perform, I find not. I know not. I try to exercise my will, says Paul. I've done my best. I really am putting my back into it. And haven't we all done this? 
We've really wanted to live a better life. We've taken our New Year's resolutions. We've taken a pledge. We've promised some loved one. Oh, we want to do it, and yet we can't. Why? Well, because lust and sin are stronger than the will. But let me go on. They are stronger also than the memory. Look at these children of Israel. They just come out of the bondage and the captivity of Egypt where they were being beaten by the taskmasters and their poor backs lashed because they were not producing enough bricks and they were not even supplying them with bricks to make, with straw to make the bricks. The awful bondage and the cruelty. And yet here they are, you see, within a few weeks forgetting all about it and lusting and wanting to go back, as it were, and say, oh, the fish and the garlic and the leeks and the onions and the melons, what's happened to them? Well, there's something within them that is stronger than memory. Memory is very powerful. Memory can be very strong. And memory is often a great aid in life. But you know this thing I'm talking about, sin and lust, and desire and passion, they're more powerful than memory, and they can silence it, and they can explain it away, and they can blunt its edge, and we say to ourselves, oh, well, it wasn't quite as bad as that after all, was it? We thought at the time it was, of course, and you see what's happening is that this subtle, terrible power uh, called sin and lust and desire is just taking the edge off memory. Memory stands a very poor chance up against the power of lust and of craving. But finally, I would put it like this. Lust and craving and desire are even more powerful than the fear of consequences. I suppose that the greatest deterrent in life is the fear of consequences. What wouldn't everybody who's listening to me at this moment have done sometimes were it not for the fear of consequences? Your reason had been silenced. Your will had gone down. And you were on the verge, but you said, Ah, if I do, what if I'm found out? What may happen to me if I do? Fear of consequences. A tremendous power. A great deterrent. But you know, when lust and passion and craving and desire really get going, though a man knows, he'll still do it. The poor drunkard knows perfectly well what he's going to feel like afterwards, but still he does it. He knows the consequences. But the desire, the power of the craving, the lust, is greater than the fear of consequences. And he reaches a point when, come what may, he must. Now, my dear friends, I've been going through this terrible analysis. For one reason only, because it is this and this alone that explains why man is as he is this evening. It is this that explains why the world is as it is this evening. It is this that is in the individual. It's in groups, in nations. This urge, this drive, this passion, this craving. And suddenly it comes and grips 
and decency and morality and argument and reason and logic and agreements and fears of consequences and everything is brushed aside and on we go. What a terrible power it is. And how puerile are the medicaments that men are offering in an attempt to stem such a power. They're just as little children who are putting up their wooden barriers to try and stop an avalanche. They're like men putting up their little walls when there's a cloudburst and a flood comes hurtling down the mountain. Can education solve this problem? Well, it's about time it did. Is there no sin and vice and evil in the universities and amongst graduates? It's in the whole of mankind. It's in every one of us since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. And it all leads, you see, to perpetual restlessness and dissatisfaction. That was the trouble with these people. Though they've been brought out by the hand of God and are marching to liberty and to the promised land, suddenly they feel this desire. Why? Well, they're restless. Craving is the result of restlessness and dissatisfaction. And the world is as it is tonight because it's got a vacant heart. That's why people must be always lusting after some new pleasure or enjoyment, some new thrill, one thing going worse than the next, why, well, it's the vacant heart, I say. They're not satisfied. They're looking for something that they haven't got. What is it? Well, there's only one answer. Man, his life is empty. Why? Well, because God isn't in his life. He was made for God. And nothing and nobody else can satisfy him. And I trust that no one will imagine that I've been denouncing men tonight. I haven't. I've been describing him in his tragedy. He lusts after this and that. Why? Well, he can't find satisfaction. He's looking for it. He's seeking for it. And there's a void. There's this gulf. And he longs for something. He doesn't know what. But what he's really longing for is God. Oh, let me say it again. Augustine knew all about it. Brilliant philosopher as he was. And yet unable to control his passion and his lust. Able to talk and argue about goodness, beauty and truth. But living with his mistress. He didn't know his real need, but at last he saw it. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters throw up mire and dirt, and that's your modern world. It's like the restless sea, and the mud and the dirt are very evident today. They've been produced in the statistics in the conferences recently. There it is, and they say, let's upset, let's set up a new commission of investigation. My dear friend, don't waste a moment of your time, nor a shilling of your money. 
there is only one hope for men, and that is a new nature. Something more powerful than this foul and evil principle of sin, the new principle of life, the life of God in the soul. What does man need? He needs a final satisfaction. And where can he find it? Except in the Son of God, our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He satisfies the mind. He satisfies the heart. He satisfies the whole man. He is enough. Whatever the need, he has the supply. All the tragedy of men in this modern world. Oh, the superficiality of the diagnosis. Here is the trouble. Here, my dear friend, is your trouble. Are you unhappy and wretched? Are you struggling and failing and battling? Are you miserable and unhappy? Are you disappointed? Are you seeking after something? Are you clutching after this and that? Never to be satisfied, always to go back in despair and in loss. Blaming others, perhaps. Blaming friends, blaming loved ones, blaming circumstances, blaming life. No, no. The trouble is in you yourself, as it's in all of us. Sin and evil, lust and craving. And there is only one answer and one solution. And I've told you what it is. How can I have it, says someone? Oh, it's so simple. Recognize the evil that is within you. Recognize that you'll never master it and never deal with it. Go to God with the acknowledgement and with the confession. And believe him when he tells you that it was because of that he sent his only son into the world. And the son came, why? Well, because man was lost. Because he was helpless, because he was hopeless. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. He came because of this terrible disease, this awful sickness called sin. Believe that. And just cast yourself upon his love and mercy and compassion. Ask him to take charge of your case. Ask him to heal you. And he has promised to do so. He has said, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out just as you are, therefore. Without one plea, go to him. Sight, riches, healing of the mind, yea, all I need in thee to find, O Lamb of God, I come. It's the only way to be delivered from this lusty, this craving. But if the Son shall make you free, 
you shall be free indeed. Amen.